All right, bradcooney.com. It's absolutely honor to have in author Brian McConnell, whose book, Beyond Contact, A Guide to SETI and Communicating with Alien Civilizations, has gotten my attention amongst many others. Brian, thanks for joining us. All right, man, a lot to talk about, man. First and foremost, um, I'm really interested in what you're doing in the field. Uh, you got a lot of good projects going on. Talk about, um, firstly, talk about what inspired you to write this book. Um, well, a, a number of things, really. Um, you know, I've always been interested in science, you know, since I was a kid. studied engineering in college. Um, and as a technology entrepreneur, um, I primarily worked in the field of uh, telecommunication, you know, and so... And you look at SETI, it's, it's, it's really, um, you know, a big part of it is a telecommunications experiment as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also interested in um, uh, translation technology, so that, that's kind of related, related to my interest in the field as well. You know, so, you know, how do people speak one language, communicate with another, and if you take that to, you know, real stream, you know, how would one civilization communicate with another that hadn't had prior contact with it? No. There are a lot of interesting technical problems uh, that are um, you know, being addressed in, in the field. Okay, very good. It's very interesting stuff. Uh, recently, I, I spoke with Ken Tapping. I'm not sure if you know who Ken is. He's an astronomer up in Canada. Um, and we talked about um, Kepler telescope. We talked about how they're able to actually directly image some of these extrasolar planets out there, which is exciting, especially for people at SETI. To where they can hone in on areas where they know there's planets now. Um, talk a little bit about what you know about where we are with that, um, with the extrasolar planet discoveries, and how that increases our chances to actually find some some life out there beyond um, Earth. Well, um, you know, the, the interesting thing, you know, I, I, I wrote this book, and uh, the book was published in 2001. So uh, it's actually um, you know pr- pretty old now uh, for a science book. And what's interesting is that at the time I wrote the book, there was really no data. Um, I mean, it was very limited data about uh, planets outside the solar system, hmm. uh, the chemistry of other planets. I mean, all, all these things that you could speculate about, and you know, you could make informed guesses about what you you know thought these experiments would find. But you know, Kepler hadn't even flown at that point. Right. And and so so what's interesting, uh, you know, Kepler in particular is that. So I guess, I guess an important point is, you know, when, when you talk about SETI, you know, 10, 20 years ago, people just thought radio telescopes, you know, kind of like you know, amateur radio, you know, type communication, making contact. Um, but now it's much broader than that. So uh, you know, some people are running communication experiments, um, both you know, radio astronomy based, and others that are looking for you know, laser-based um, beacons. Um, but then, you know, there, there's a whole other group of researchers that are uh, just, you know, purely interested in finding out, and more importantly, not just detecting a single planet, but really doing a statistical survey uh, to find out, you know, how common planets are, how common Earth-like planets are. Um, and, and that's what Kepler has really done, is just delivered a huge amount of statistical data and from that, you can really make, you know, an informed guess about how many, even now you can make an informed guess that there's several billion Earth-like, potentially habitable planets, you know, in, in the Milky Way. Um, two years ago, we didn't know that. You know, and so that, you know, you know, it's pretty 
amazing, you know, you know how much progress has been made in you know a relatively short period of time. Um, and then I think over the next ten years, you know, we'll have the ability uh, to actually you know um, observe the atmospheric chemistry of these places, and then uh, you know from there we'll be we'll know what percentage of Earth-like planets actually have some sort of biological activity going on. Well, necessarily know if it's intelligent or not, mm-hmm. but. You know, we'll be able to say, okay, now this is three percent. This is you know, three percent of the stars that have Earth-like planets. You know, ten percent of those have you know some sort of biology happening, or whatever that number ends up being. You know, we'll have a number, and from that we'll know um, you know how many um, you know potential targets there are, basically. Mm-hmm. And the, and the Drake equation in, in itself. It makes it nearly impossible for there not to be life out there. I mean, would you? Is, is that a fair assessment? Um, you know, that, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. Um, you know, that that's an assumption. You know, and you know, science is all about collecting data. Um, but yeah, the, the numbers are very large, and so the odds are, I think, that, that you know, you know, that you know that you know, that number is going to be greater. It's going to be greater than one. Um, mm-hmm. That was just my personal bet, but that's just my personal assumption. Right, right. You know, one thing that's interesting is that you know the Drake equation isn't really. A lot of people think of it in the same way they think of E and you know, equals MC squared, but it's it's, it's really more of a whiteboard exercise. Um, the, the equation was written up, you know, just basically as a way to sort of um, frame the discussion that people were having, um, you know, a long time ago now, just about how to go about, you know, even you know, estimating how many, you know, how many you know, sites there might be. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have the number of stars being formed per year, then percentage of stars as planets, percentage of stars as habitable planets, and you know, you link right. all those factors together and you know, you have, you know, rough estimate of, you know, how many civilizations are potentially detectable at, at any one time. But it, it really started out as a whiteboard exercise at a symposium. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that me and uh Ken Tapping, again, he he, he works with Doctor Maru, um the the team that's th- directly imaging some of these extrasolar planets. One of the things he was talking about to me was how the Goldilocks zone is what they call it, the Goldilocks zone. It's kind of thrown upside down on its head now because of some of the discoveries we're finding here on Earth um, with life forms, you know, in, in, you know, right down inside vol- volcanoes and the, the extreme temperatures where life's able to, to exist, you know, in Antarctica. And so they're, they're not really as... Um, you know, they don't put as much emphasis on the Goldilocks zone as they used to. Um, have you heard the same thing? Yeah, and, you know, the, 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 I guess the, the way to address that is, um, you, know, it, you know, if you're looking for, you know, sort of a like, you know, land-based continental-scale civilization, you know, that that's going to depend on finding a place like Earth where you, you know, have oceans and sure. a stable climate system and, um, you know, and that, that, that's where a lot of the assumptions about, you know, drawing up you know, sort of the radius of the habitable zone uh, came from. If you're just looking for microbes, um, then it's just much broader than that because, right. you know, as long as there's a, a niche environment uh, on a planet habitable, uh, that's all that matters. And then and the other thing is you could have, for example, um, moons around a planet that's outside the Hubble zone. So imagine something, you know, you know, something like Earth orbiting Jupiter, except Jupiter is about where Mars is. Um, well, the, the tidal heating that's going on, um, you know, um, 
would offset the fact that it's further away from the sun. So you could have, you know, you could have planets that you know, different energy budgets and are habitable in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect just from doing kind of a simple, uh, you know, estimate. Mm-hmm. So the so chances are we're underestimating, you know, the number of places that, you know, are potentially habitable. Yeah, so. I, I agree. And the other thing is, like, what are the chances that if there's, in fact, life forms out there that's evolved to an intelligent level, um, what are the chances that they've actually evolved like we have and used radio signals in the first place? Uh, I'd say that, you know, that's, again, you know, there you're talking about, you know, a land-based, you know, continental-scale civilization or, you know, you know what, whatever they are have the ability to make and use tools. Um, that doesn't rule out, you know, in, you know, intelligent life, you know, particularly marine life. Right. Um, you know, but there you wouldn't be, you know, that, that wouldn't be detectable with, with our technology. That they wouldn't be building, you know, telescopes. So the study does sort of artificially narrow, um, you know, what you can detect. Now, um, there's an interesting paper published, um, uh, last year. And, you know, and this has been talked about for a while, but, um, you know, any kind of industrial civilization is going to alter, uh, the chemistry of its atmosphere, you know, as, as we've been doing here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And there are specific things you can look for, uh, like, you know, for example, uh, you know, CFC type uh, chemicals that aren't produced through any natural, you know, known right. natural process. So if you can find these sort of, you know, the, um, you know, signatures of industrial chemicals, um, then you pretty much know something is going on um, that, you know, it's not just microbes, right? So you can't rule out anything, but, you know, it's definitely be a red flag. Um, so there's a potential to detect evidence of um, a civilization but not be able to communicate, you know, directly. But, you know, just know through, um, you know, you know, atmospheric surveys that, you know, they're there. Hmm. That's, you know, that's interesting, too. Right. Now, let's just play pretend for a second, and, and let's just say that we do, in fact, um, we detect a radio signal from another world, and, you know, we're convinced it's not just noise. In your opinion, how do you think we would react to it, and what do you think we would say? Uh, well, the initial reaction would just be to understand what, um, particularly, you know, if the signal was... Um, uh, you know, not you know, transient in nature. So, uh, for example, there was the the, the best known incident was what was called the uh, so-called loud signal. Right. Uh, um, you know, this was back in Ohio in the 1970s. You know, very very short broadcast was picked up. Um, you know, but it only lasted a you know a few seconds or a few minutes. So there wasn't really any time uh, to observe it, record it, and you know figure out what information was you know being delivered, if any. It could have, you know, could have been a you know, satellite going by or something as well. But, um, yeah, that, 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 that was one of the more, um, you know, best-known sort of, you know, potential uh, signals. Um, yeah, so if it's something like that, all we'll really know is, well, there's, there's you know, we, we have, you know, there's something out there, but we don't really know what, and there's not really no information being delivered. Now, on the other hand, if it's a deliberate uh, attempt at communication and that, um, you know, continues for an extended period of time, um, you know, a lot of information could be uh, transmitted with that kind of signal. And then, you know, that, that, that's where things get really interesting. You know, if it's, if it's actually decipherable transmission, mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and you end up with something like you know, Egyptian hieroglyphics or you know, whatever it is. You know, you can speculate for you know eons about sure. you know, what they might say. Uh, but then, you know, you, you, at that point, you have you know sort of undeniable proof that you know um, you know we're being contacted, and um, you know it's hard to say how people would react. Um, you know, I, I don't think reaction would be uh, bad. Um, you know, it's not like you know, they're landing on your front yard or something. Um, you know, but I, I definitely think people would be very interested in it, and you know, some people might be. Uh, shocked, upset by it. But, you know, I, I think the majority of people now know that you know this, this is a you know a real possibility, and so it won't be it won't be a huge surprise. It certainly, won't be a surprise to most of the people I know. Um, sure. You know, and so you know, so I think you know, most people's reaction, I guess, would just be more fascination than anything. How do you think the governments would would react to that? Would they go ahead and just let the people know about it and, and admit to it, or you think they would try to? say it didn't happen, or what's your opinion on that? You know, at this point, censoring that kind of information would be almost impossible, um, partly because, you know, you don't necessarily know that the, you know, the site that detects the signal like that is going to be, you know, a government-controlled site, you know. Mm-hmm. More likely than not, going to be university um, operation or, or potentially even an amateur astronomer um, couldn't get into, you know, optical surveys, you know, um, that's something you can do with you know uh, much more you know compact equipment. So you know, basically, once you have a detection event, uh, what you know what would happen next is people you know at, at other sites would confirm it, and then once you have more than you know two people involved, the possibility of keeping it secret is uh, you know pretty pretty much nil. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I I think you know the news would get out uh, fairly quickly. Um, I read. I read this. What I was researching before I got you on this podcast show, and I read an interview you did, and they talked about um, UFOs, and you weren't really. You know what I got out of what you were saying was, is you don't discount the possibility, but you're not really that optimistic that they're actually visiting. But you did bring up one hypothesis I thought was interesting, and that was about possible robotic probes that might be sent here as a possibility. Can you get into that a little bit more? Oh yeah, and that's. that's um, you know, just think about what we would do, you know, if, if we detected, you know, a habitable planet, you know, mm-hmm. that we could potentially, you know, reach. Um, actually sending vehicles with people is, you know, you know kind of beyond the realm of physical possibility with, you know, current technology. And it seems like that's going to be unworkable for uh, quite a long time. But, you know, sending something like, you know, the curiosity probe or, you know, or just, you know, you know satellite you know, orbit and, and take images and survey the atmosphere and that kind of thing, you know, if we had the ability to do that, we definitely would be doing that sort of thing. So I think it's pretty reasonable uh, to assume that, you know, other civilizations would be doing similar types of science, basically. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't necessarily know that. You know, they're there, and, and in, in many cases, you know, I mean, it's a well-known um, principle in science that, you know, if um, the subject knows they're being observed, it alters their behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if you want to really do a clean experiment, you really don't want anybody to know that they're being, you know, that their behavior is being measured. So, and that's presumably something they would understand as well. So, that ends up kind of the possibility that, you know, you know, if that sort of thing's going on, that the sort of, um, you know, traditional UFO stories and that kind of thing. I, I don't really 
um, you know, the, the evidence would be kind of overwhelming, you know. Um, so all they really, all they really need to do is set one down in a baseball stadium and that's, <laughs> you know, be the end of the discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. Um, all right, so talk talk more about about the meat of your book. You know, I, I didn't get to read the whole thing. I read, I've just read certain, you know, what people are saying about it in interviews you've done. Um, but what was the main message you wanted to get across in writing this book? Uh, well, the, the main purpose of it was to give the reader sort of a you know, comprehensive overview, um, you know, of study as a project, not just the communication experiment, but. Um, you know, the, you know, the work that was being done to develop, you know, for example, you know, tools like Kepler, uh, that look for habitable planets. Um, so it's really gets divided into several parts. You know, one part was, you know, understanding, um, you know, the science behind, um, understanding, you know, or finding, um, habitable planets and then, you know, surveying that, you know, how many there are, that sort of thing. So you sort of have a handle on how many sites are out there where life could potentially develop. And then the second part was really about the detection and communication experiments, and that's really where you get into this, you know, uh, radio-based study or optical study where you're looking for, you know, laser beacons. And then, the, you know, sort of the final part of the book is about, okay, so you detect a signal or you want to send a signal. You know, how, how can you organize that sort of message in a way that it, it's decipherable to somebody who's never communicated with you before? Mm-hmm. So, and then that really gets into this, um, you know, the process of, you know, building, you know, building a, uh, really creating a language that contains clues to decoding it. Um, and, that, that, and that's actually, you know, where I do a lot of my work. Um, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the interview, I'm interested in translation technology, which is really kind of related to this on a lot of levels. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really the, the goal of the book was just to give people a good overview of, um, you know, the whole field of research and, you know, explain it in a way that you didn't necessarily need to be, you know, need to have a really deep technical background. That being said, the book is 12 years old, so I wouldn't really, I, I'm not really interested in pimping the book anymore just because, you know, so much has happened. Sure. Uh, that sort of moves the predictions within the book into, well, you know, go, you know, go look at the Kepler website and you can see what their current stats are. All right. So if we did actually receive a radio signal or some sort of a signal from another world, then we and we and we you know we're, we're sure it's it's not noise. It's it's definitely from a a you know intelligent civilization. You would probably be a guy that they might want to bring in to try to uh, build the response, build and figure out how to respond to it. Is is, is that something you would be? I'm, I'm guessing you would be very interested in that.
the internet and we have, you know, really tens of thousands of software developers floating around, uh, I, I guarantee the majority of them are going to want to take a crack at figuring out what's in that kind of message. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unless it's not designed to be deciphered, I, I think we'd have a good, um, you know, the odds of figuring out what was in it would be pretty good. Um, and, you know, so that, that's, now, on the other hand, it's not designed to be deciphered. You know, if we just picked up some random, um, you know, transition from a, you know, like a radar type system, uh, you know, then you know, there's not going to be anything to decipher. You know, we'll you know, be stuck. But um, yeah. How do you? Well, what is your guess, man? Well, just give me your best guess. This is again, this is this is assumptions. But do you believe the chances are? that we will in fact find or hear um, detect a signal from another civilization in the next 20 or 30 years uh, give me give me a 1 to 10 1 it ain't going to happen 10 it's going to happen I'll give you a 5 on that it, it, it's really a matter of timing um, so you know, if, I, if I was going to make some predictions mm-hmm. um, uh, you know detect the first or possibly several Earth analogs this year and uh, by years from now, that's probably going to be a few dozen, and that number will continue growing, um, you know, with, with you know, systems like Kepler and then you know, some of the new telescopes that are going to go online. Um, I think we'll probably detect the first planet with some sort of biomarker in its atmosphere uh, in 10 to 15 years. Again, this is the guess, but that's sure. kind of when we'll have that ability technically, um, so that, you know, that timing seems good. Uh, the, the thing with the, the study is this is the total wild card is in order to detect something, uh, you have what's called a duty cycle problem. And what that means is um, you, you can't broadcast in all directions at the same time without consuming ridiculous amounts of energy. So most likely uh, they're going to be, you know, they or we would be doing, you know, a targeted uh, survey. So they'll be, you know, looking at one, one star for a month. You know, and cycling through them. Um, so you both have to be looking at each other at the same time. So, you know, there you know, could very well be something out there, but we just won't see it for a hundred years because they're not going to get around to, you know, aiming our way, you know, um, you know, for that length of time. So that, that's the real issue um, in, you know, signal detection. Now we can detect, I think we'll have the ability to detect, um, you know, the signature, you know, of industrial chemistry. Um, pretty, you know, pretty soon, like, you know, in the next decade. So, you know, if you, you're, you know, you know, there's some, something out there sort of like, you know, at the stage we were at in the Industrial Revolution, you know, you'd be able to pick that up, but you wouldn't be able to communicate or send a signal. But you'd at least know, you know, hey, we really need to keep an eye on that one. Isn't that interesting? I mean, because if you think about that, let's say we do find that signature on a planet and we're in, and it's, you know, it looks like it has the atmospheric makeup of a civilization about where we are. It's, but it's so many light years away. By the time we even got a signal to it and come back, the planet might not even be there anymore. I mean, or they, the civilization may not even be there anymore. That's crazy when you think about it. Yeah, and that's that's another big issue. Um, you know, you know, the, the time delay is basically makes two-way communication very impractical. Yep. Um, you know, so anything that 
you would communicate would need to be in a format that works, you know, for one-way communication. That's two things. One, you need to um, make a lot of effort uh, to make the message um, comprehensive. You know, so, for example, um, a number of people have done a lot of work uh, building up mathematical languages. Um, you know, and they can actually extend that to where they can deal with you know, fairly abstract concepts, but you know, the sort of basis for the language is very, very simple mathematics that would be understandable to anybody that's you know, capable of you know, building tools. Um, you know, so, um, you know, like Hans Freudenthal, Carl DeVito, uh, Stefan DeMoss, and, and people like that, they've spent a lot of work in this area um, you know, to deal with the one one-way communication problem. And then there's another group of us that spent time on what's called algorithmic communication systems. And that's basically what you're doing there is um, you're building a mathematical language but also essentially a programming language uh, that's designed to be run on sort of an imaginary computer. And the assumption is anybody capable of doing radio astronomy is going to understand or is pretty much going to have to understand um, the basic concepts in, in you know, digital computing, and so if you know that they need to be, you know, they need to be familiar with that, then you know you can you know build a message that it might have elements of it that are very simplistic, you know, like pictograms and things, but the bulk of it would be in the form of some sort of programming language. Because yeah. uh, the thing you can do then is you can send simulations of things, um, and you know you're not limited. Um, you know, the, the program could potentially, you know, interact in, in ways, you know, various ways with its recipient. Um, so that is a, you know, potentially very powerful way to get around the whole time delay problem. Yeah, because it would be an awful, an awful long conversation when you're talking about, you know, 40, 50, 60 light years away. Um, Nobody's got time for that. I mean, I hope they figure out, you know, <laughs> some some way to get a quicker conversation going on. Talk a little bit more about this translation and, and multilingual communications you're working on. This is a project that that you, you were mentioning to me. Talk about that. What's that about? Sure. Um, I just want uh, to add one one other point real quick. Sure. Something that a lot of people um, probably aren't aware of. Um, so about probably six or seven years ago now. Um, um, a really important paper was published in Nature about, um, it's called, um, uh, Inscribed Matter. Um, but, you know, most, most of your listeners, I assume, have seen 2001 of Space Odyssey, so they, you know, know about Arthur Clarke's monolith. Um, the, the idea there, um, is it, it's a way to deal with the, you know, the, the duty cycle problem. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, the basic issue with radio communication or optical communication is, you know, the signal is ephemeral. It has to be on, has to be aimed at, at all times, or, you know, the recipients of, you know, odds are they're not going to detect it. Um, the idea was the paper was to illustrate, um, you know, basically to calculate how much information you could uh, transmit, um, you know, in, in, you know, a solid object, you know, that would be, you know, that travels pretty slowly to its destination, you know, you know you know, when you're talking interstellar distances, so it might take 100,000 years for it to reach its target system and then just sit there for millions of years, mm. waiting, you know, like the monolith, waiting to be found. Well, it turns out you can send a lot of information that way, um, huge amounts, um, essentially a lot more than you could send via signal. And that has the added benefit of, you know, well, you know when 
designed in a way that it really stands out against this background and, you know, be detectable uh, and eventually, you know, eventually investigated. And so that's just a very interesting concept. And, you know, obviously, there you're dealing with, you know, huge amounts of time. I mean, you know, there you know, millions of years, basically. So you're not in a huge rush to make contact like tomorrow. Um, but if you wanted to send these things out all over the place, you know, that that would be a good strategy, and it's something that you know we should be looking for here as well, because you know something like that could be, you know, waiting, you know, waiting to be found, basically. So mm-hmm. you don't want to assume necessarily that the you know the uh, contact can come in the form of a radio signal, come in a number of different forms. And yeah, that's it's just mind blowing. Um, all right, so. What is this translation and multilingual communications project you're working on? Yeah, so I've, basically since college I've been working on, um, you know, generally interested in translation technology. Um, I've done a lot of work uh, combining machine translation with, um, you know, sort of like Wikipedia type approaches where, um, uh, you know, people who are bilingual, not necessarily professional translators, but, you know, just the confidence and more than language. Uh, can basically go in and clean up machine translation. So, um, yeah, machine translation is great for translating lots of material very quickly, but it, you know, the quality level is usually pretty, I wouldn't say bad, but, you know, it's, you can under, understand what's being said, but, you know, the word order is all wrong, you know, mm-hmm. you, know, it's, it's, you, know it's, you can tell it's, it's, you know, computer translation. So, it, you know, the ideal is if you can, you know, get the best of both worlds. So, you know, use the machine translation to get your, you know, that foreign language news story translated in like 10 seconds. And then if that turns out to be an important story, you make it easy for people to come in and clean up the errors in the machine translation if they're getting in the way of people comprehending what it's about. Um, and so that's kind of in a nutshell type of system that I've been working on. Um, one of the things I'm doing right now is investing a, a link sharing service that makes it easy for people to, you know, bookmark and share links to uh, foreign language uh, news stories. You know, it could be anything about the election of the new pope or, you know, soccer game, you know, whatever. Um, and the way it works is, you know, you, you create a link on our system and then you share that via your, you know, Twitter feed, email, you know, your blog or, you know, uh, whatever you use to communicate with your audience. And then anybody who follows that link, uh, what it does is it, it checks to see what language they speak. And if the language they speak is different than the language that the item was published in, uh, it'll kick in and uh, automatically translate that. Uh, wow. So, you know, so if it's an Italian newspaper article, you see it in English, and, you know, your friend that speaks Spanish will see it in Spanish. Um, you know, and it's, uh, it's you know, it's a a simple concept that has a lot of utility to make this possible for people to curate and share uh, links to things that you know you, you normally wouldn't even uh, you wouldn't even find you know so hmm. part of it the other part is you know how do you know to look for something in Spanish if you don't speak Spanish right right you know, so you might be very interested in you know for example you know you know uh, soccer or something like that but if you're not looking you know you're not looking for it then you don't find and this makes it possible for people who are bilingual, um, you know, say, hey, here's my list of interesting stuff in Spanish, you know, go check it out. And, you know, so people who don't speak Spanish, but know that person, you know, uh, start to get visibility in what's happening in that language. How, uh, 
how does the system know what language the person speaks? And uh, so, so anytime you, this is a technical detail, but anytime you request the web page, uh, your browser uh, sends a number of you know and basically it's, it's, you know, sends a block of data to the web server, uh, telling it um, you know what browser you're running, yeah. what operating system you're running, what language your operating system is set for. Yeah. You know, specifically, if somebody has their system configured for Spanish, like when they bought their computer, they probably Spanish is their first language. Uh, they might speak other languages they don't know about. Right. But you know what their their preferred language is. Um, and there's a set of interna uh, international uh, set of codes, you know, like, you know, two-letter codes, that, you know, for each language. Um, you know, so it's actually pretty easy uh, to figure that out. You can also just ask the user's location, you know, not like GPS, but, you know, you know generally we'll know where they are to the, uh, um, you know, to what well, you know, radius of a few miles, so you know what city and country they're in. Uh, so that's information you can use in that equation as well. Really interesting stuff, man. I wish you all the all the all the luck with that. Um, all right, man. I guess that 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 pretty much wraps up uh, what I wanted to cover, man. Very very interesting stuff. Um, I appreciate you doing this. Is there any websites or anything out there you want you want people to know about and go visit before I let you go? Um, you know, I, I, um, I wish you'd ask me for the interview. Um, I'll I'll email you afterwards. Yep, I can certainly put it in there. Yeah, absolutely. Just send me anything you want, you know, put in there and we'll do it. I appreciate you doing this, man. Um, got any closing thoughts for all the listeners out there? Um, not, not really. Um, yeah, I really appreciate the invite.